A.W. Tozer wrote these convicting words that I'd like to share with you tonight. He said, there's an evil which I have seen under the sun. It is the glaring disparity between theology and practice among professing Christians. So wide is the gulf that separates theory from practice in the church that an inquiring stranger who chances upon both would scarcely dream that there was any relation between them. An intelligent observer of our human scene who heard the Sunday morning sermon and later watched the Sunday afternoon conduct of those who had heard it would conclude that he had been examining two distinct contrary religions. It appears that too many Christians want, the, want to enjoy the thrill of feeling right but are not willing to endure the inconveniences of being right. I just want to read that to you one more time so that it can penetrate a little bit more. Tozer says, it appears that too many Christians want to enjoy the thrill of feeling right, but are not willing to endure the inconveniences of being right. And that's what I'd like to talk to you about tonight as we continue in James chapter 1 and talk a little bit more about doing the word and not just hearing the word. Let's just, as a way of review, begin back in verse 1 again and talk about what we've learned in the past couple months as we studied this passage. It, it, we, we know that this book was written by James, the half-brother of Jesus, and I love that he starts the book by not calling himself the brother of Jesus. He calls himself a bondservant of Jesus. That's huge for me. A bondservant is a slave, and, and, and a slave only does what his master tells him to do. I love that James, Jesus' half-brother, would refer to himself that way and not as a brother. We know that this is a, an epistle or a letter written by James, and it was written to the 12 tribes which were scattered abroad. It was written to a people who had been uh, done dirty, a people who were hurting, a people who were living in difficult situations. I wonder if there's anyone here tonight that can relate to that. He tells us in, in uh, verse 2 to count it all joy when we fall into various trials, and that's just crazy thinking. I, I wonder how many of you, when you fall into a various trial, are like, yay, I can't wait. And, and that's really what he's saying. He's saying embrace that thing, embrace that trouble, embrace that trial, because it is working something in you that can't be worked any other way. That God is bringing something out of you because of that trial. He's doing something in you so that you can be mature and complete and not lacking anything. Can I tell you what I'm really, really fed up with in the church today? We want our ears tickled. We want to hear a fine-sounding sermon that's been rehearsed and sounds super good. But we are not maturing and becoming complete, solid rock Christians. And I really don't have a lot of patience for it. And James says that thing, that trouble that you're trying to avoid, that trial that you're trying to escape from, is working in you something that can't be worked any other way. And he says, if you're lacking wisdom and how to deal with this trouble, deal with this trial, deal with life, just deal with life. This is what you need to do. You need to ask God, and he'll give you wisdom. And he'll give it to you generously without finding fault. He's not going to say you should know better. He's just going to lavish wisdom on you simply because you ask. And some of you are in situations tonight that you don't know what to do. You don't know how to get free of it. You don't know what your next decision needs to be. Can I just tell you, ask. Ask the one who promises to give wisdom. 
because he will give it generously and he won't find fault with you asking. But he says, be careful when you do ask that, that you ask in faith and you don't doubt. You don't doubt the God who cannot lie, not just that he cannot lie, he will not lie. It's impossible for him to lie. That he means what he says, that his word is true. And so when you ask and he tells you something, ask and not doubt. Because when you doubt, you're a double-minded man and you'll be unstable in all you do. That our, our loyalty, our devotion needs to be to God. We need to believe he's who he says he is and he'll do what he says he will do. And then he goes on to remind us uh, about uh, keeping an eternal perspective uh, and he encourages them to endure under temptation and he reminds us that when we are tempted, when we want to sin, don't you dare blame God. And I love that he doesn't even mention the devil here because, you know, we do that. Who was that, Flip Wilson? I'm, I'm really aging myself. It, you know, do you remember that? The devil made me do it. He doesn't even mention the devil here. He doesn't bring Satan into the picture here. You see, he's saying you can't blame God and you can't blame Satan. If you are tempted and you give in to temptation and you sin, because by the way, no temptation has seized you, but what is common to man, and when you are tempted, not if, because we will all be tempted, when you are tempted, he will always give you a way of escape. Only can I just tell you, temptation is tasty. Sin is tasty for a season. If it wasn't, none of us would do it. He says, when you are tempted, God will always give you a way of escape. But you've got to choose to take the way of escape. And he said, don't you dare say God is tempting me. Because each man is tempted when by his own evil desires, his own evil desires, is lured away and enticed. Sin entices us sometimes, doesn't it? I know you're super spiritual, but sin entices us sometimes. And we are lured away and enticed by sin. And then sin, when it's conceived, gives birth to what? Death. I can't even tell you the death that that will bring. God's word is not this, this list of do's and don'ts to keep you from, from having fun. He knows that, that anything in opposition to his word will always bring death. And then James reminds us in verse 16, and this is where I want to pick up tonight. He says, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. <laughs> oh, I love that he calls us his beloved brethren because now he's talking not to unbelievers. He's talking to his brothers in Christ, joint heirs in Christ. He, he's talking to us as believers. And I want you to remember that. It's going to sound like he's talking to unbelievers, but he's talking to us. Let it penetrate us tonight, Lord. He says, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. And I want to just park on beloved there because in a, in a series of two, what, three verses here, he calls us beloved brethren twice. He wants to get a point across. He's stressing it. And he's saying, not only are you, am I writing this to you, my brothers, to fellow believers, I want you to know something. You are beloved. Can I tell you, precious one, you are beloved by God. You're his beloved. He takes great delight in you. You're his treasured possession, the word of God says. Every hair on your head is numbered by God. I had seven children. I have seven children. I have no idea how many hairs they have on their head. I love them with everything in my being, but I, I don't know how many hairs they have in their head. But God knows how many hairs you have in your head. He keeps every tear you've ever cried in a bottle. That's how precious you are to him. 
He loves you with an everlasting, eternal love. I don't care what you've done, dear ones. I don't care how bad it was. He loves you, and there is absolutely nothing that you can ever do to separate you from his love. That's love, is it not? It's unfailing love. Some of you have had some loves in your life, but they've failed you. God's love is unfailing. Oh, that should rock your world. You say, well, Rhea, you don't know what I've done. Oh, I don't, but God does, and he loves you anyway. See, that's a whisper from the enemy that God can't love you because of what you've done. God's word counters that and says, there's nothing you could ever do to separate you from my love. You're his beloved. And then James says, every good and perfect gift is from above, and it comes down from the Father of lights with whom there's no variation or shadow of turning. Verse 18, of his own will. Of his own will. Nobody twisted his arm. Nobody made him do this. Of his own will, he brought us forth. He birthed us. He brought us forth. We were born again. We were born from above by the word of truth that we might be a first fruit of his creation. Anybody know what a first fruit is? Did you know that in the Old Testament time they would bring first fruit offerings? Are you with me? It was the best. It was the first, uh, the first part of the harvest, and it was a guarantee that there was more coming. But you offered that to God as a first fruit. You offered it to him as a sacrifice, saying, Lord, all that I have is yours. Here's the first fruit of the abundance of the harvest that's coming. It's yours. And he says, you are a first fruit of God. You know that we are told to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. We are his first fruits. Well, he brought us forth. We were born from above, not because we deserved it, not because we could earn it. Can I tell you, it is by grace that you've been saved through faith and not by works so that no man can boast. You did not deserve to be saved. You didn't. You couldn't be good enough to be saved. You can't earn it. You, there is nothing you can do to lose it. Can I tell you, you are saved by grace. It was a gift of God. Every good and perfect gift is from above. So don't be deceived by anything else. This is a gift from him. You have been brought forth by him. Do you see it? By the word of truth. And nothing can change that. And see, it's very important that we settle that in this verse because as we go on, you might be tempted to think I'm talking about works because I'm not going to be. But the overflow of being saved by grace, the overflow of that is that we, we, we want to obey. You say, well, Rhea, that's crazy thinking. Flip over to, to 1 John 2. 1 John 2, chapter 2, verse 3. Now by this, we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. By this, we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. I want you to see that, that, that it isn't uh, knowing the commandments doesn't cause you to know God. Knowing God will cause you to keep the commandments. Do you see the difference? People say, well, that's work mentality. If you try to keep the commandments to prove you love God, if you try to keep the commandments to prove that you know God, no, 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 you're reading that wrong. He says, because you know God, <laughs> you don't want to do anything else. You want, you want to do this because you understand it's keeping you from 
death. It's keeping you from choices that are going to bring death. It's keeping you. It's, it's keeping you from the fullness of life that he wants you to have. Oh, you're saved. You're saved by grace. But if you look over in James chapter 2 at the very end, it says, uh, in verse 25, it says, um, the doers of this word, they will be blessed in what they do. You see, you're saved, but, but the blessing of God comes when we do this, when we obey him. That there's, there's just something that, that comes in our life, a fullness that comes in our life. And James is going to talk to us about that. He says, you've been brought forth by the word of truth that you might be a kind of first fruits of his creation. Every day, Lord, I offer myself to you. I want to be a living sacrifice. I want people to look at me and get a glimpse of the harvest that's coming. I want people to look at me. I want to be a living epistle. I I, I want people to, to be able to look at me and see what you're able to do. Do you know that we should be God's resume? People should be able to look at us and get a picture of what God can do. That's what a resume does. A resume is what you give your employer or future employer, and you say, this is what I'm capable of doing. This, these are my, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Credentials. This is, this is what I am able to do. And you see, when God looks at us, when, when people look at us, we should be living epistles. We should be God's resume where they can look at us as a first fruit and say, that is a glimpse of what my life can look like. That is a glimpse of the harvest that's to come. That's a glimpse of what God can do to a life surrendered to him. Church. This grieves me more than anything I can tell you. As we go through this passage all week long, as I've been studying it, I have been grieved. Do people look at you? And do they say, there is something about him. There is something about her. I see Christ. They reflect the glory of Christ. There is something I want. That there's a, that an example that you're living that draws people to Christ because of you. Your first fruit. You're a living epistle. You're God's resume. We should look different than the unbeliever down the street. We should hear the word and do it and be affected by it, and our life should look different. And that's what James is going to tell us. He said, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. I love that, the word of truth. I could park there. This word is true. It's yea and amen to those who believe that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So then, because of this, because he brought us forth by the word of truth, because we're saved by grace and not by works, because we are first fruit of his creation, because of that, my beloved brother, and there he says it again, don't lose sight of who you are. Let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to become rest to wrath. I spent, uh, I think, two weeks on that very verse, so I'm not going to park there. So, so let's just go on to verse 21. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, and this is what I love so much, which is able to save your souls. Somebody tell me what the word soul means. You've heard me preach on this numerous times. It's your Mind, your will, your emotions. (laughs) Do you know that this word is able to save? Do you know what that word save means? To deliver, to make whole, to set free, to rescue. Do you know that this word right here, 
can rescue your mind that's been broken and messed up? Do you know that it can rescue and restore your, your soul, your will, your emotions? That it can, it can deliver you and set you free? Do you understand the power of this word? He says, receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. If you write in your Bible, really important that you underline that word, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty, I, I love that, the law of liberty, the law of freedom, the word of God that brings freedom, and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one, this one, this one will be blessed in all that he does. If anyone among you thinks he is religious, and you see, when we talk about being religious, that has a bad connotation today. But when James was writing this, it was not a bad, it was not a bad word. It, wasn't, it didn't have those negative connotations attached to him. It really meant somebody who fears God and who wants to serve him, who worships Yahweh. And that's what it meant. It was, it was not a bad thing, a bad term. And, and so he says, if anyone among you thinks he is religious... And does not bridle his tongue, he deceives his own heart. There's that word again, deceives. This one's religion is useless. Does somebody have the NIV? What does it say? Worthless. <laughs> Your religion is worthless. I'm not kidding you. All week long, I've been grieving over this passage. That we are going through the motions of Christianity that we think we're all that in a bag of potato chips, that we think we're following, that we're going to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. We don't ever miss Bible study. We never miss prayer meeting. We can quote scripture inside, upside, and backwards, but I'm going to tell you what I need to ask you tonight. Are you being deceived? Is your religion, if all was exposed, is your religion worthless, useless? goes on in verse 27 to say pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and it's striking to me how many times we as churches can take that verse out and say we need to go visit widows and orphans do you know what that really is a picture of the most defenseless people in Bible times the most vulnerable people in Bible times were widows and orphans because if a woman's husband, he was the sole provider, it, women really were nothing. And if he died and she became a widow, her life was basically over. An orphan, a fatherless child, is there anything more vulnerable than that? And what he's saying is pure and undefiled religion is going to care about the, 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 the defenseless, the hurting, the broken, the people who are alone, the, the people of this world. Do you just name it? Name one person who doesn't fit that category. We need to be concerned with others. We need to be pouring ourselves out for others. We need to care less about ourselves and more about somebody else. And he says... Uh, it's this to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself, to keep me, to guard, that word means, to be a warden, <laughs> to be a warden over my own life. 
to keep myself from being spotted, contaminated, defiled by the world. Now, when he uses the word world, he doesn't mean the universe. He means the world, the things in it, materialism, and garbage, trash, and filth, what you're setting your eye on. He said, guard yourself, keep yourself, be a warden over your own life, and keep yourself from being spotted by the world, defiled by the world. So let's just pick up there. I, I just want you to see that word. I want to go back and revisit that first fruit because as I was meditating on that this week, I started to think when Dave and I uh, bought our home, we, just, we built a home about, what, Dave, nine, ten years, nine years ago? Um, we, uh, we bought in a neighborhood that was really not built up yet. It was just a new neighborhood. And, and, and we really had no idea how many houses were going to be there or what the, what the builder's houses were really like or what the neighborhood was going to look like. And here we were going to invest all this money in something. We, we didn't even know what it was going to look like. But there was one thing that the builder did. His very first house, the first fruits, he built a beautiful home. And it was a model home. And, and he decorated it beautifully. And he had the best of everything, the best landscaping, the best decorations on the inside. He had all the upgrades. He didn't just have Formica counters. He had granite counters. It was just beautiful. And the reason he did that was for people like Dave and I who had no idea what it was going to look like to say, this is a sample of what, what it's going to look like. This is a first fruit. You can come in and look at it and get a taste for what your neighborhood is going to look like. Can I tell you what? You're God's model home. People should be able to step into your life and get a glimpse, a beautiful glimpse, dear ones, a beautiful glimpse of what God can do. I, I, I am fully aware that I am a strong cup of coffee. But can I just tell you, I could care less what people think about me. Here's what I want them to say. That when they step into my life, we prayed it tonight as a, as, a, as a team. I prayed, I don't care if people think we're unwise, unschooled, ordinary people. Here's what I care about. That they know that we have been with Jesus. That's what I care about. I don't care if you think I have a great put-together sermon with three points and a joke. I'm really not concerned about that. I don't care if I've rehearsed it and I've dotted all my I's and crossed all my T's. Here's what I care about. That this is the real deal. That what you see is what you get. That it is not a put-on act full of hypocrisy. It is the real deal. Because that's what I want to be. That or nothing at all. Because I am a living epistle. People should be able to read my life and see Jesus. And see Jesus. Not see an act. Guys, this is grieve anybody but me. We are a first fruit of his creation. He said, we've been brought forth by the, the, the word of truth. Can I tell you, this word, it's interesting to me that the verses prior to that, he says, you know, you are tempted, and you're tempted by evil, and when you're tempted, you're drawn away enticed by your own desires, and when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. Gives birth to sin, gives birth to death. He gave birth to us. You see it? Our flesh is going to give birth to sin. 
The best that we can do in our fleshly desires is, is, is be enticed and drawn away, give birth to sin and death. But he uses the very same word to say, but here's what God can do. Here's what the word of truth can do. It can give birth to life. This thing, when we sit in the word, when we study the word, it'll bring forth something in us. It'll bring, this word will bring forth life within us. It'll bring forth something in us. It'll birth something in us that in our flesh will never happen. So then he goes on and he says, because of this. So look at verse 21, after he tells us all of this stuff, he says, your first fruit, you've been brought forth by the word of truth. God did this in your life by grace. It had nothing to do with you because the best you can do is blow it. So he said, because of this, my beloved brethren, lay aside all filthiness and the overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Can I just tell you, before we go any further, you cannot, I don't believe, that you can lose your salvation. Some people would argue with me, but I think once saved, always saved. If, if you have given your life to Christ and you are sold out for him, you don't have to fear losing that. He says, no one can snatch you out of my hand. But here's what you can lose. You've been saved by grace, you can't lose that. So you can't lose your salvation. But dear ones, you can lose your effectiveness and your power. You can lose your effectiveness and your power. There is nothing I want more than to make a difference everywhere I go, every conversation I have, every interaction I have. I believe, I believe that God's word is powerful. I believe we should reflect his glory. And so when I, when, when, when I am just doing whatever I want to do and I'm not walking in obedience to the, the word of God, I, can, I cannot lose my salvation. There is no way. But I can sure lose my effectiveness and my power. So he says, because of this, you need to lay aside all filthiness and the overflow of wickedness. I think the NIV says, rid yourself. Rid yourself. Of filthiness and and that word rid yourself you see we we want rid of it but we want god to zap us and it's interesting to me that he says rid yourself don't ask god to do it you make the choice to rid yourself of filthiness it's a picture of taking off old dirty clothes and putting on clean ones it's stripping off the old man and putting on the new so what exactly is james commanding us to strip off or rid ourselves of all filthiness and the overflow of wickedness. And that word all there, I don't want you to miss it. It means every instance of. You say, well, Rhea, God understands. Yeah, he does. Rhea, you can't be perfect. No, you can't. When you get to heaven, you will be. But you see, we're not even aiming anymore. The Bible says to aim for perfection. He says, lay aside, and it's a command. Lay aside and rid yourself of all filthiness and the overflow of wickedness. That word filthiness means to make filthy, to be foul, to defile, to dishonor. It's a picture of moral defilement. And this is the only place in the word of God that it's used in the New Testament. And, and, and it's interesting that James uses the 
uh, the adjective form of it, of this word, in, in chapter 2, verse 2, when he's talking about the clothing of a poor man. He says in verse 2, uh, also come in a poor man in filthy clothing. And that is the, the, the adjective of this word that he uses for filthy. And, and what he's describing is someone reduced to beggary, someone who's asking alms, somebody who's destitute of wealth, influence, position, and honor. Vine's Dictionary says it's describing someone who's powerless to accomplish an end. You didn't get that, or you would be wowing. He says, put aside and rid yourself of all filthiness. Rid yourself of anything that is going to strip you of honor, anything that's going to make you look poor and not, not uh, displaying the, the abundance and the wealth that God wants you to have. Strip yourself and rid yourself of anything that's powerless to bring you to the end that God has in mind for you. It's the same word that's used in Zechariah, verse 3, and I'm going to make you turn there tonight because I, I want you to see something. Zechariah, verse 3, or I'm sorry, chapter 3, verse 1. The, verse for, the word for filthy is in verse 3, but when I went to look for it, I saw the rest of this, and I just want to, to focus on it for a moment tonight. Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah is the book before um, Malachi, I think. So the last book in the Old Testament, right before Matthew, is Zechariah and then one, or is Malachi and one back is Zechariah. So Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua. That word Joshua means Jehovah is salvation. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. Now I want you to see that that word angel is capitalized. And, it, and, and it's a picture, it's a theophily, it's a picture of the incarnate Christ. And so I, he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. And Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. Now that's, that's just interesting to me because you've heard me say a million times that the right hand is the hand of power. It's the hand of authority. And Satan is there to oppose us, to oppose Joshua. It's exactly what Satan does to you and I. The Bible says that he's our adversary, that he is the accuser of the brethren. And he's standing at the right side of Joshua, and, and he's looking for the same thing from Joshua that he's looking from you and me. He's looking for power. He's looking to take our power and to take our authority. He wants to strip you of the authority that Christ has given you. He wants to convince you that you don't have any power. He's standing beside Joshua, opposing him at his right hand, looking for his power and his authority. And that word opposed there means to resist. Or to, be, or to act as an adversary, to attack. I looked up the word adversary, and it means one who contends with, one's opponent in a contest. Now, I, I, I wanted to go look at that, even though I'm looking for the word filthy, and we're going to get to that, but here's what I want you to see that I saw this week. The Bible says that Joshua was standing there, the high priest, and he's standing beside the angel of the Lord. And on the right side, Satan is standing there to oppose him. The adversary, the one who is the opponent, is the opponent in a contest. That, that's what, the, word of, that's what the, the original word means, an opponent in a contest. Do you know that Satan is the opponent in a contest? Leslie said to me a few weeks ago, Rhea, you like to win more than anybody I know. 
Can, can I tell you, if you come to my house, and we love board games at my house, if you come, I like to win. I'm going to win. I promise. I'll do anything I can to win. And if I don't win, I pout because you just, I like to win. I like to be the winner. I, I'm really, Isabella, am I not? Like, I am, I'm serious about this stuff. And I, I'm not, I don't even get fun anymore because I'm so into winning. I want to win. Leslie said to me the other day, she said, Rhea, you hate to lose. You like to win more than anybody I know. Can you treat Satan like that? Can you, can you battle him like that, Rhea? And when I saw that word adversary, won an opponent in a contest, I was like, oh, baby, you did not want to show me that. Because I am competitive. And I've already won. You're a defeated foe, Satan. And you are standing at my right side looking for power and authority. And can I just tell you what? I'm winning this one. I am winning this one because I'm not unaware. I am not unaware. And you see, what would happen if we went through our day, day in and day out, looking at every obstacle, every challenge, every trial that we face, saying, you're not winning this one. You are trying to oppose me. You're trying to get my power. You're trying to get my authority. And you're trying to win this thing. Can I tell you what? You've already lost. On the cross of Calvary, you lost. You're a defeated foe. And that's how I'm facing this battle. Anybody, sweet Karen, now you know why she's on my team. That's a powerhouse. Is she not a powerhouse? You see, she understands battle. She, I said to her, she texted me this week, and she said, Rhea, can I just have five minutes up front? And she said, I just want to talk about it, and I want to call people forward and pray. And you can pray for them, Rhea. And I said, oh, no, 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 Karen, you're going to pray for them. And she said, why? And I said, because you are going to give Satan a black eye. You're going to make him regret that he ever messed with you. Do you see? She understands battle. She, Church, we've got to understand warfare. We've got to understand that we are not fighting against flesh and blood. It is not about the person standing next to you. It's not about Susie at work who pushes every button you have. It's not about your spouse. You are not battling against flesh and blood. You are fighting an adversary, an opponent, who is after your power and your authority, and he is looking to win this contest. Don't you dare let him win. Don't you dare let him win. And so look at that passage. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you. This is not a bland brand plucked from the fire. Now this is what I want you to see. Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. Then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, take away the filthy garments from him. And he said to him, see, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. Do you know that you are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus? The old is gone and the new has come. So when James is, is reminding you to lay aside all filthiness and the overflow of wickedness, he's painting a picture of how offensive our sin is to God. He's using the word filth. It's displeasing. And I think, church, we have forgotten that our sin is displeasing to God. That when we disobey him, it's displeasing. You say, yes, you're saved by grace. Absolutely, positively. Can you ever get him to not love you anymore? My daughter, Kendall. Is Kendall here? Hey, baby girl. Um, my daughter, Kendall. You know, sometimes she, she's really a sweet little obedient girl, but sometimes she does not do what I ask her to do. 
Kendall, did I not ask you the other day to pick up your clothing off the floor of her bedroom? And, and I said to her, I texted her at work and said, I ask you to pick up the clothing from your bedroom floor. It's still there. You are grounded. Now, did I stop loving Kendall because she disobeyed me? No way. I love that little girl with every ounce of my being. There's nothing she could do to make me stop loving her. But she disobeyed me. Do you see? You can choose to disobey God if you want. Rock on with your bad self. But over on chapter 2, verse 20, or chapter 1, verse 25, it says that the man who obeys him and does what he says, he'll be blessed in all that he does. See, I don't know about you, but I really like God's blessing. I like to be blessed. I like his hand of favor to be upon me. And so I want that. So this man will be blessed in all he does. I, I want that. And so he's painting a picture to us, and he's saying, get rid of that filthiness and the overflow of wickedness. That, that overflow of wickedness, it means residue. It means the remains, and, and it's really the remains of what's left in our life after conversion, the old man rising up again. Get rid of that stuff, he says. Strip it off. It's interesting, one commentator said that it was a word that was used by Greeks when they wanted to describe excess wax in somebody's ears. I'm going to really gross you out here, okay? My son Tyler, who is 31, when he was a little boy, I had to take him to the pediatrician all the time, and they had to remove wax from his ears. It was the grossest thing I have ever seen in my life. They put this little thing in his ear, and they dig down in, because what would happen, why we knew he had such wax in his ears, is it's, he was hard of hearing. And I'd be like, you are nine years old. You should not be hard of hearing. And so we'd take him to the doctor, and he'd say, oh, he just has a lot of wax in his ear. We just have to take it out. And he'd pop the wax out of his ear, and Ty could hear, like, you know, perfect. This word, get rid of the overflow of wickedness, the excess in your life, it's a picture of excess wax in one's ears. It was the same word that was used for that. See, you're not following me because if you were, you would be amazed. What he's saying is because this is James who's going to go on and say, don't just listen to the word, do it. And what he's saying is the overflow of wickedness in your life is clogging your ears. I just want to know how many of you, don't raise your hand, but I want to know how many of you have ever gone to God's word. And you're reading it, and you're reading it, and you're like, I can't even read this. I'm reading one same verse over and over and over. I don't understand it. It doesn't mean anything to me. And this person over here, they read it, and they get all this good stuff out of it, and I can't get anything out of it. Excess wax from the overflow of wickedness, from the residue of life, from stuff you've allowed in your life, you've entertained that you know you're not supposed to. But you've said, I'm saved by grace. God loves me. Yes, he does. But I don't know about you. I want to hear Jesus. I want to hear the Holy Spirit speaking in my life more than anything in this world. You can take all I have. I'm telling you, you can strip me of everything. Today I said to the Lord, strip me of everything. Take everything I have if you want. Just don't, just don't let me stop hearing you. You see, there's nothing I love more than hearing from God. There's nothing I love more than opening up this word and, and getting a revelation and hearing his voice. 
this message that I'm working on for all week long. I couldn't write fast enough. I just felt like he was just downloading stuff inside of me. I kept saying, Lord, I have such a holy fear right now that I'm going to stand in that pulpit and not be able to tell everything that you've told me. It's so good. There's nothing better than that. And so many of you have heard and you've walked with me these past two and a half years have been the most painful years of my life, of my life. And you've heard me say that I felt justified being angry. I felt justified not forgiving. You've heard me say that if I told you what I had to live through and what was going on in my life, you would say, you have every right, Rhea. You have every, nobody blames you, girlfriend. And I really kind of indulged in that. And I was like, even though I knew what the word said, I'd listen to God tell me. I could read it. I could quote it to you. Even though I knew that, I really, this thing hurt me so deeply on in such a tragic level that, that I could say to you, God understands. Baby, he, he does not blame me. He gets this. I'm ticked off. And I have a right to be ticked off. And I have a right not to forgive. I have a right to be depressed and stay in bed. I have a right. And I've told you, if I told you what it was, you'd say you have a right, Rhea. But here's what happened. The overflow of wickedness. The wax started to build up and build up and build up. And I couldn't hear anymore. His voice was getting dimmer and dimmer and dimmer. And you see, it was really a good ploy on his part because he knew I would get desperate enough to say, I don't care anymore, Lord. I don't care. I don't care what this person did. I don't care how this person is living. I don't care what's happening in their life. I don't care. I'm letting them go because I cannot stand this wax in my ears. Take it out, Lord. And I'm telling you, in that moment... In that moment, it was like that pediatrician going in Tyler's ear and removing that huge hunk of wax and him being able to say, Mama, I can hear again. Can I tell you, I can hear again? I can hear again, and it's glorious. It is glorious, and there is nothing that I ever want to do to go back to that place again. He says, get rid of that garbage. It's not worth it. Get rid of it. And notice he says, get rid of all, all. Rid yourself of all filthiness and the overflow of wickedness. You see, here's what we do, what I did. Lord, I'll, I'll rid myself of all this stuff. But this one area, Lord, I'm going to hang on to. I know what you say. I've listened. But I don't have to do that because you understand. And he says, no, no, no. You rid yourself of all, Rhea. Every bit, all, all residue. Rid yourself of it. And he says, and then receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your soul. He's saying before you can receive, and that word receive means to accept and welcome as a guest. <laughs> receive the word of God, the implanted word of God, which is able to save your soul. Before you can receive and accept it, you've got to get that junk out of your life. Before your mind, your will, your emotions can be cleansed, delivered, rescued, and set free. You've got to get rid of that junk in your life. We have to come to his word with a pure heart. That's why so often we say, you know, I can't understand it. I, if I get to a point where I'm not understanding and this is like just, I can't even, 
grasp his word, I will sit there and say, Lord, I just examine my heart right now. Just examine it. Put your finger on the things that need to go, Lord, because I want to hear your voice. You see, we compromise. We compromise through gossip. We compromise with malice and slander. We compromise with bitterness and unforgiveness. We compromise with anger and rage and hatred. We filled our hearts so that there's no room for his word. We're overflowing with wickedness instead of with the goodness of the Lord. We compromise with jealousy and envy. We let it consume us so that we can't be consumed by him. We've set our eyes on things that we shouldn't, and so our eyes, when we set on his word, are blurred. Our hearts are divided between God and Facebook. Our hearts are divided between God and Instagram. Our, our hearts are divided between God and success. Our hearts are divided with, between God and the loves of this world. And he's saying, get rid of all that stuff, lay it aside, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your soul. That word, meekness, it's, it's just so good. It's the temper of spirit in which we accept his dealings with us as good. And therefore, without disputing or resisting. I want to read it to you again. That's the definition straight out of the Greek. That word, meekness, the temper of spirit in which we accept God's dealing with us as good. And therefore, without disputing or resisting. That's why James says, consider it pure joy when you encounter trials. Can you accept with meekness what God's doing in your life, knowing that he's going to bring something good out of it? Don't dispute it. Don't resist it. Embrace it. And he's saying, do the same thing with the word of God, with the word of truth. It's truth. It's not a lie. It's truth. And when we realize God's word is true and it's life and it's an anchor for our soul and that we need to receive it and not resist it and by submitting to what is good, the best in our lives will, will flow forth. We don't argue with the word. So often we go to the word and we don't like what we hear. So even though we're listening and we've heard it, we don't want to do it because, you know, it just doesn't agree with us. We don't like it. We don't like the sacrifice that God is asking us to give up. We go to the word and we read, get rid of, you know, all bitterness, rage, and anger. And you're like, I have a right to be angry. We're Italian in our family and that's just how we are. You're resisting his word. You're not receiving it. You're being a listener and not a hearer, not a doer. You see it. And he says, receive uh, with meekness. Lord, I trust your word. I don't like it all the time, but I trust that it's truth. And so I'm going to humble myself under it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to forgive that person even though they don't deserve it. I'm going to do it just simply because you said it. And if you said it, you're going to take care of me. And when I receive your word with meekness, when I'm humbled by it and I receive it into my life, even though I don't want to do it, life will come from it. Life will come from it. He said, be doers of the word and not hearers only. I want you to see the word only there. I think the, the um, King James says, merely listener. He, he's saying, it's, it's not that we're not supposed to listen. It's that you don't just listen. You, you haven't really listened. You haven't really heard unless you're doing it. He says, receive the implanted word. I, the, I like one of the translations says the ingested word. Oh, do you know that we are called to ingest this word? Oh, baby. We're called to devour this word. When's the last time you really devoured this word? 
that you took it in and ingested it so that it got implanted within you and saved your soul, delivered you, rescued you, set you free from some emotions that are really strong in your life. The implanted word. When my children were little, they, they, every Mother's Day, they would uh, plant a seed in a little Dixie cup with their teachers, and, and they would watch that seed. They'd nurture it and water it, and they'd watch that seed sprout up. Are you with me? And they'd bring it home as a Mother's Day gift for me. And, and every year I would think the scripture, the implanted word of God. Do you know that the Bible says that it is an incorruptible seed? An incorruptible seed. When this thing gets implanted in you, it's automatic. When my kids put marigold seeds in that good ground, what happened? It was nurtured and watered and it sprung forth and it brought something beautiful. That seed brought forth something beautiful. Can I tell you, I promise you this, when you ingest this word, when you devour this word, when it gets planted deep down inside of you, it is an incorruptible seed that will bring forth something beautiful in your life. Why in the world would you not want to do it? It is a powerful word. It's an incorruptible word. He says, be doers of the word and not hearers only. Someone once said, too many believers mark their Bibles but fail to allow the Bible to mark them. I used to get a new Bible. I still do get a Bible, a new Bible every year. And, and I always would say to people that, that I get a new Bible because I mark it. And when I go back to the same passage the next year, I, I want the Lord to speak a fresh word to me, fresh man. And that was true. But you know what else was true? I mark my Bible. And so for me, there was a bit of pride that, that, that if I, somebody was sitting next to me, I'd be like, look how super spiritual I am. My Bible's marked. Yours isn't. I know none of you do that. I get a new Bible every year. See, we mark our Bibles, but have our, have the word of, has, we mark in the word of God, but has the word of God marked us? Has it marked you? Are you not just a listener? Are you a doer of the word? How do we do that? James says we become submissive to the word of God. We become doers and not hearers only. Accepting the word of God means applying it to our life and doing it, not just going through the motions because he says when you do, when you do it, you will be blessed in all that you do. Sometimes I think that we come to church. When I was taking, I took uh, classes to, to get my MDiv and and when I was taking these classes uh, to get my, the Masters of Divinity, there were people in the classroom that were auditing the class. Are you with me? I paid a bundle to take that class. I did a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of work. I had to pay attention and listen. I had to write papers. I had to take tests. I, 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 had, to, I had a lot of work I had to do. The people who audited the class paid next to nothing. It didn't cost them hardly anything. And they just showed up and they, they listened. They were entertained by the professor. They didn't have to do any of the work. They didn't have to take any of the tests. They, they weren't required to, to, to show that they really learned anything in the class. It was just really to puff them up and give them more knowledge. Are you with me? Sometimes I think that's what we do in church. You know, Lord, I just want to audit this class. I really don't want to have to do anything with it. And we show up and we listen. It doesn't cost us anything. Because you see, obedience is costly. 
doing God's word is costly. We don't have to put forth much effort. We just get to listen. James is saying, don't just listen and deceive yourself. You know what he's saying, deceive yourself? It means to delude yourself. What it's saying is, oh, and I just have to read the quote because it's so good. Let me just have a moment to find it here. He, he says, you're deceiving yourself. And, oh, my. Doug Moo, who is one of my favorite commentators, he says this. People who merely listen to the word are on dangerous ground. They deceive themselves. The idea of deceive in this context is clear. To be deceived is to be blinded to the reality of one's true religious state. People can think that they're right with God when they really are not. And so it is for those people who hear the word, regular church attenders, seminary students, and even seminary professors and pastors, but do not do it. They are mistaken in thinking that they are truly right with God. For God's word cannot be divided into parts. If one wants the benefits of its saving power, one must also embrace it as a guide for life. The person who fails to do the word, James therefore suggests, is a person who has not truly accepted God's word at all. Jesus himself said, blessed are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Uh, the Shema, the, uh, the Shema, I think it is. Hero, God, hero Israel, the Lord our God is one. Hear, Shema, Shema. It means to, to hear and obey. And what it means, it's a kua. If you look up that word in the Greek, it, it means to not just hear with your ears but to obey what you hear. And, and the picture it's drawing is that if you are not obeying, you haven't heard. You have not heard. And so James is saying this here. He's saying, don't just listen to the word because in doing that, you deceive yourself. You think you're religious and you're not. If you really hear, if you're really listening, you'll do that word. You'll do what he tells you to do. And the same grace that saved you will empower you to walk out that word. This isn't about obedience for eternal salvation. That happens by grace alone. This is about giving evidence of the salvation with our lives. We have to learn to accept not just Christ, but accept his word and do it. Notice how many times he repeats do in this passage. He's stressing the importance of obedience. He says, hey, you know, do this word because it's able to save your soul. That word able is dunama. Hey, you'll remember dunamis. It's where we get our word dynamite. It means inherit power. Do you know that this word of God right here has in inherit power to deliver you, to set you free, to save your soul, to rescue you from bondage and captivity? It's able and that word able is in the present tense. It means it has continuous ability, ongoing ability all through your life. This word has the ability to rescue you, to save you, to make you whole. There are tons of people, including me, that are saved and going to heaven. But because their mind is not constantly being renewed in the word of God, there's no true transformation taking place in their life. We're living in bondage, a pit. We're living captive. And God says, will you receive the law of liberty? You see, that's what happened to me. When my ears were plugged with wax, when the overflow of wickedness was coming out of my life because I had been done dirty, 
God brought me to a place where I would look into his law of freedom. Rhea, freedom. Doing what I say will bring freedom. Forgiving, Rhea, even when you don't feel like it, when you think you have a right not to forgive, will bring freedom, Rhea. Will you do it? This is a law of liberty. It's not a law to make you captive. It's not a law to cheat you out of life. It's not a law to make you feel like I'm this dictator God. It's a law of liberty. It's a law that will bring freedom in your life when you do it. So he said, be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourself. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man observing his natural face in the mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he is. I love this. So that means when I was in that pit, I would come to the word of God and I would see, Rhea, forgive. I would see, you know, your anger doesn't bring about the righteous life that God desires. I would see, you know, be kind and compassionate, Rhea. I would see that in the word and I'd have to look at myself and say, that's not who I am right now. But I would go away and forget what kind of man I was. Forget what I was seeing when I looked in the word of God. And that word forget, it doesn't mean that I'm forgetful that my memory is failing me. It doesn't mean that at all. It just means I no longer care what kind of man I am. He's not describing a man with a poor memory, Stephen Cole says, but rather a man with poor priorities. He doesn't remember what he saw in the mirror because he doesn't regard it as very important. God, heaven, eternal life, and all the other doctrines of the Bible are interesting and nice. But this kind of man has a career to pursue. He's got a, 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 a wrong to make right. He's got a vengeance. He's, got, he's keeping a record of somebody else's wrong. He's got money he's worried about. He's got, he's got other priorities in his life. He wants to get drunk as a skunk and, and party as hard as he can. Those are his priorities. Looking into God's word and making the changes are not a priority for him. But then he goes on and says, but the man who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer, this one will be blessed in all that he does. I don't know about you, but I want to be blessed in all that I do. I want my family blessed. I want my life blessed. I don't want to deceive myself. I told you that word, deceive, means to delude. It means to circumvent. And, and it's interesting to me how we do that. The circumvent means to avoid defeat or failure by artfulness or deception. I don't want to look at that, so I'm just going to deceive myself. I don't want to deal with that stuff in my life, so I'm just going to deceive myself. You say, well, I don't like this kind of sermon. I don't like hearing the truth of God's word. I don't like feeling convicted. Can you do some feel-good sermon for me and tickle my ears a little bit? I think that we shouldn't have time for that, church. I can, I can tell you fun, loving things. I can make you laugh. I can entertain you. Or your life can be transformed by the word of God. I'm telling you, people don't want our Jesus because we don't look a whole lot like him. We're not any different than the unbeliever down the street. And if you want a feel-good sermon, you can find a church that will preach you one, but I will not preach that. I take seriously the Word of God, and I'm telling you this not because I studied it. I'm telling you this because I live it, and I see what it does in our life. I see the difference that those two and a half years made for me, hanging on to the garbage and the overflow of wickedness. I don't want that stuff in my life. 
I want to be the real deal or nothing at all. I don't just want to listen to the word and deceive myself. I don't want to let it go in one ear and out the other. I don't want to glance in the word like a mirror and walk away. I want God to change me and transform me, and the same grace that saved me can do that in me. I don't want my religion to be useless. That word useless means devoid of force, devoid of result, useless of no, pers- of no purpose. Oh, that grieves me. I don't want my relationship with Christ to not have any result in my life and in the lives of others. I don't want to go through the motions of Christianity. I don't want to be... David, do you remember we went for a desk? Dave and I, um, I, I have an office in my home that I work out of most of the time. And a number of years, probably, I don't know, 15 years ago, I needed a new desk because my job, I was going to be able to work a little bit more at home. And so I needed an office, and Dave and I went to Steinhoffel's Furniture, and I was really in a hurry. My schedule was really busy, and I didn't have much time to, to go furniture shopping. So I wanted to go in and get right out. I just wanted to go in, find a desk, and get out. And, and so I went in, and at the time, we had Cherry Furniture in our, it was probably longer than 15 years ago because Cherry Furniture is, was really popular at that time. And so I, our house was Cherry Furniture, and I wanted a Cherry Desk. Um, to match our furniture and so we went in and I saw what I thought looked like a pretty nice you know cherry desk and I was like let's get that one the price is right Davy look how cheap it is and let's just can we order that and Dave is overlooking at the desk he's crawling up underneath it he's pulling the drawers out and I'm like come on baby I just want to get home this desk is great look how good it looks it's gonna be perfect and he's like oh no Rhea you don't you don't want this desk I'm like Dave look it's a color we need the price is right it doesn't get any better than that let's just get that and he's like Rhea trust me you don't want this desk and I'm like I don't understand and he said Rhea it's veneer it's cherry veneer and I'm like I don't know what veneer is and and he says it's just a thin you know a thin coating on the outside but the rest is particle board Rhea he said this is not what you want it's not through and through cherry it's not solid cherry it's fake it's a cheap imitation of the real thing I remember that day like it was yesterday because at that moment, God just spoke into my heart and said, Rhea, you do not want to be a veneer Christian. You don't want to look good from a distance. But when people get up underneath you and inspect you in trial or in tribulation or in a hard time, they realize that you are just a veneer Christian. You're a cheap imitation of the real thing. And James is saying, you don't want to be a cheap imitation of the real thing. You're just deceiving yourself if that's what you are. Why do we do that, church? Why are we going to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night? Oh, I can pray for you. I can quote you some scripture, but I am a veneer Christian. Maybe that's okay for you. It's not. And James said, here's the solution. So that your religion is not worthless. Don't just listen to the gospel. Do it. Do it. Not out of works. Because you understand that that man will be blessed in all that he does. Good stuff. 